Frustrated, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And today we're bringing you some awesome sci-fi stories, um, weirdly cohesive genre Mm -hmm. for the two of us, and some fireworks because it was happening while we were recording and we didn't edit them out. So enjoy that! So, what are you infatuated with this week? I am infatuated with Meet Me in Another Life by Katrina Silvey. Look how pretty this is. It is very pretty. There is a theme going on in your bookshelf and that is gold foil. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because I'm a magpie apparently. So yeah, this came out in July of this year, 2021. Mm -hmm. And it's probably one of my favourite books I've read this year. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I'm eating a biscuit. <laughs> we move, we move. And the premise of it is this. So Thora and Santi meet each other again and again. But they, they don't know it. Mm-hmm. So sometimes they're friends, sometimes they're lovers, adoptive parent and child, adoptive siblings. <laughs> We're recording this on Bonfire Night, Guy Fox Night. So if you hear banging, it's it's fireworks. Yep. <laughs> Um, <laughs> this episode comes to you brought by a chaotic week <laughs> to chaotic moods. If any of you follow us on Twitter, then you already know. <laughs> you saw this weeks ago. Um, but um, yeah, just there's there's biscuits, there's tea, we're under blankets, it's that kind of mood, and there's fireworks happening. So anyway. Anyway. Back to the books. So yeah, sometimes they're friends, sometimes lovers, adoptive parent and child, adoptive siblings, teacher and student, it goes on. But slowly they start remembering these past lives and the fact that they've met before and they have to work out why they're stuck in this weird loop. Okay. It's genius. So there are other people in their lives who also reoccur, but those people have no recollection of this phenomenon that is happening. So you have Thora and Santi being the only people sharing this experience. It's also set in Cologne. Uh, It's very pretty, but apologies in advance for the German that I'll probably butcher. And yeah, I actually wanted to really quickly read out the author bio for Sylvie because I think it gives you a good indication of what this book will be. Okay. Katrina Sylvie was born in Glasgow and grew up in Perthshire and Derbyshire, which left her with a strange accent and a distrust of flat places. She overcame the latter to do a BA in English at Cambridge and spent the next few years there working in scientific publishing. After that, she did a PhD in language evolution in the hopes of finding out where all these words came from in the first place. Following stints in Edinburgh and Chicago, she returned to Cambridge, where she lives with her husband and a very peculiar cat. When she's not working as a researcher studying meaning and language, she writes fantasy and science fiction. Her short stories have been performed at the Edinburgh International Book Festival and shortlisted for the Bridport Prize. How cool is she? She's so cool. So yeah, as you can see, we're in good hands for a book about like identity and philosophy and like weird science fiction twists. Yeah. <laughs> I want her bio to be my life. I know. That's so cool. I know. Also, the Bridport Prize is no fucking joke. Well done to her. Yep. So yeah, what I love about this book is the structure, which is such a great reflection of the story that unfolds in it. 
Um, so each chapter feels like a short story. We're introduced to a new Thora and a new Sante, whatever their relationship is. But the more you read and the more lives that you see and the more that Thora and Sante click onto the cycle, the more they all start to blend together. And so by the end, it feels less like a collection of short stories and more like a wider narrative. You still have different chapters for different lives, but it's like they become layered on top of each other. It's kind of hard to describe, but one example is that there's graffiti on the clock tower in the square that keeps getting overlaid with more graffiti and you figure out that it's them doing it. So you can actually see all of their past lives like piled on top of one another if that makes sense. That's so cool! Yeah, so the whole book is like that, <laughs> which is why it's kind of hard to like explain because you have to read it to see all the like building... Yeah, it's like a, oh, what's the fancy word? Like a palimpsest. Yeah, basically, yeah. But yeah, it's like all these memories becoming piled on top of each other as well as like actual physical things. So yeah, because of that, I'm quite conscious that a lot of the detail in these passages wouldn't like feel significant for someone who hasn't read it but I'll try my best to sort of point out things that are important without Mm. spoiling stuff but yeah like the places small character details other characters I guess what I want to say is that by reading this book you have access to like loads of intricate detail yeah it's why I was kind of swithering actually whether to talk about this book because I don't know if the quotes will hold as much like gravity (laughs) as Mm. they should um but I'm just gonna go with it because they're still like good quotes they're still pretty so you know hit me up yo yeah I'm ready so I'm gonna start with the start I'm gonna read a few pages actually um just because there's a few lines I want to point out that kind of just hit all the big themes of the book (laughs) and then my other quotes will be a bit shorter so yeah this is the first few pages of the book i love when we do this when it's like a little story time right from the beginning yeah (laughs) (laughs) so this chapter the first chapter is titled welcome to forever thora wishes she could start again she wishes she hadn't dyed her hair blue or worn the clashing orange pinafore dress that screams trying too hard to be interesting Above all, she wishes she hadn't come here, to the thudding crush of the international students' welcome party. The music rises another notch, obscuring what the boy in front of her is shouting. What? she yells. He leans close to her ear. I said, I really feel like we've met before. She gives him a weak smile and throws back the rest of her half-empty red wine. Shaking the glass in explanation, she slips past him through the dark, strobing space, pushing the bar in the fire escape. Out, she thinks with sudden desperation. Let me out. To emerge into the cold wind outside. Whose idea was this? She asks the cobbled square, the reconstructed facades of Cologne's old town. Who holds a get-to-know-you event where no one can hear what anyone's saying? The city doesn't offer an answer. But Thora knows the noise wasn't really the problem. The problem was her. Hmm, that is a tricky word to come up. <laughs> 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 like, look at that. That's an impressive one, good luck. <laughs> Since... <laughs> Did I say the problem was her? I can't remember. Yeah. The problem was her. Since she stepped out of the... Hotvenhof? Possibly. <laughs> 
possibly, three days ago. She has built a wall between her and everyone else, impenetrable and invisible as glass. She came to this party hoping the music and the drink would blast through it. Instead, she feels like she has spent the night screaming at her own reflection. Nothing from the other side came through. What are you studying? Physics, no way. Where are you from? Echo after echo of the same question, each leaving her more alone than the last. She walks, not knowing where she's going. A breeze blows her hair back, kills her heated face. To her right, the square leaks out through narrow alleyways to the flat silk of the Rhine. To her left, past a grassy courtyard, a ruined clock tower points towards the sky, hands frozen at seven minutes to twelve. Thora doesn't believe in fate. Still, she thinks some paths are better than others. Here, in her first week of university, on the threshold of so many futures, she feels a sick sense of vertigo. This is supposed to be where her life begins, and already she's taken a wrong turn. Why can't she be happy with one party, one city, one planet? What made her this way gave her this ghost at the corner of her eye. At the courtyard gate, she stops. Ignoring the padlock and chain, she vaults the railings and drops into the grass, following her shadow until it disappears. Ten steps bring her into a new world, quiet and rift by stars. Thora breathes in like a swimmer surfacing from a long dive. She's about to lie down in the grass when she sees someone has beaten her to it. A boy, spread-eagled, head thrown back like he's trying to inhale the universe. Someone else might thrill at encountering a kindred spirit. Thora only resents him. This space was hers and he has taken it from her. She hovers on the grass, orbiting two possible worlds. She's alone and it's dark. She should keep her distance. He's drunk, maybe passed out. She should check on him. She sucks in a breath and takes a bet on the second world. Hello, she says. Um, ist alles okay? The boy scrambles to his feet. Thora takes him in. Wide eyes and curly black hair, good looking in a way that puts her on edge in case he knows it. Short, even accounting for the fact that most people are short from Thora's 5 foot 11 perspective. English, he says hopefully. Oh, yeah, please, she laughs. As you may have noticed, my German is basically English in a German accent. He looks over his shoulder at where he was lying, as if he owes her an explanation. I was just... He cuts himself off. Santiago Lopez. Santi. The accent matches the name. <laughs> oh, I fucking love fireworks. It takes Thora a moment to register that he's actually put his hand out for her to shake. She takes it. I thought you were passed out. I was coming to check on you. You kidding me? The beers in that club were five euros. I couldn't afford to pass out. He looks like he's laughing at her. Do you have a name? Of course. Introductions, that's how they work. She continues, absurdly shaking his hand. Thora, let's go, va. He lets go of her hand to point at her. You sound like you're from England, but your name doesn't. One blessing of the loud party, it kept this conversation from happening. Explain your existence, Thora sighs, hoping to keep it short. My dad's Czech and my mum's from Iceland, but I grew up in the UK. She shrugs. Academics, you know how it is. He runs a hand self-consciously through his hair. Well, my father's a bus driver and my mother works in a shop, so no, I don't. 
Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm not sorry that every word pushes her onto a worse path. What right does he have to do this to her? She laughs under her breath. Shit. You know what? I'm just going to start introducing myself as Jane Smith from now on. Santi throws his hands up in mock apology. Sorry for trying to start a conversation. I didn't ask for a conversation. She hugs herself, looking up at the stars. I just wanted to come outside and be alone. Of course. I'm sorry I trespassed in your private city. He bows mockingly and walks away. Sora cringes. Wait. Santi turns. I'm sorry, she says. This whole night. I spent it failing to get through to anyone. I thought it was a noise or everyone else, but I guess it's just me. And now... He's staring at her, caught between amusement and irritation. Now what? Thora clicks her fingers. I know. Do you mind lying back down? Just there, where you were, like I was never here. She expects... <laughs> she expects him to walk away, but he shrugs and laughs and lies back down, and she has learned something about him. Okay, wait there. Thora walks back the way she came. In the dark by the railing, she counts to three, considers leaving, thinks, God, what am I doing? And sweeps back onto the grass, holding out her hand to a bewildered Santi. He takes it, letting her pull him to his feet. Hi, she says brightly. I'm Thora Litskova. Nice to meet you for absolutely the first time. <laughs> it's so cute. It is so cute. <laughs> It's also big, big relatable content. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, like I said, there's lots of lines I love in this one. Ones that I kind of only picked up on when going back. So first of all, I obviously love that the book starts with Thora wishes she could start again. Mm. Because obviously she gets to many times. I also like her thought, explain your existence. Because again, obviously that's what this entire book is about. They're trying to work out like oh. why they exist in a weird loop. <laughs> and in their interaction where they reintroduce themselves and say, nice to meet you for absolutely the first time is a nice moment too, as it definitely isn't. <laughs> um, and yeah, finally, I just wanted to repeat some of Santi's lines as well. So that all happened there. <laughs> and then in the next couple pages, which I won't read because I think it will take too long. Santi says, how well can you ever really know someone? He says, I think we're all forever a mystery to each other. And then he also says, you can't ever know someone completely. You'd have to be everything to them and that's impossible. So they're doing that while talking about like their parents' marriages and how like in a marriage, like one of them says sort of like, oh, but you'll, you'll know everyone completely. And one of them says, but there's even when you're married there's still secrets so that's kind of like the vibe and I don't want to sort of say too much about his quotes but like all of those thoughts are perhaps a hint at why the cycle keeps happening to them and I'll leave it to that do you know what line I really liked was when she said um she doesn't believe in fate but some paths are better than others yeah I'll come back to that. <laughs> I, was like, uh, I feel compelled to like write that down and put it somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So that quote was from Thora's point of view, but my other two are from Santi's perspective. And in this first one, he isn't aware about the multiple lives yet, but we're like starting to see hints of something. Okay. So this chapter 
is called Not Enough Sky. The stars are wrong. Santi lies in his back, the grass of the uni park tickling his neck, the air thrumming with a summer storm on the way. Here, in the green belt separating the city from the suburbs, the sky is dark enough to show him a scattering of lights. One set of stars, steady and constant, as if they are the only stars there have ever been. He closes his eyes. Different stars and different patterns burned into his memory. When he lets himself see them all at once, the sky becomes crowded, impossible, a sea of blazing light. Sante has always trusted in fate, that there is one way things have to go. He isn't literal enough to believe that the future is written in the stars. He's doing a PhD in astronomy after all. But his memories of other skies still unsettle him. The idea that there are other possible configurations for the universe, that God could be running them all in parallel, cuts against everything he believes. The only way he can reconcile what he remembers is to think that it's a message, one he's not yet ready to understand. He watches the world like a detective, like a poet, waiting for the meaning to come clear. In a square in the old town stands a ruined clock tower covered with graffiti. Over the other scrolls, someone has written in ragged black letters, Not Enough Sky. The first time Santi saw it, he stopped in his tracks. He was used to the city's verbosity, slogans in a dozen languages blooming over its walls. But those three words felt like his own thought, transmuted through someone else's mind, spoken directly back to him. Sometimes he wonders if that's the only reason he hasn't gone mad. He's not alone. Someone else is dislocated in the same way that he is, and one day he will meet them face to face. When he opens his eyes, the stars are gone. He blinks, but it's just the storm clouds moving in. All the imagery and the metaphors. I know, it's so good. So yeah, a couple of things I like to point out probably an obvious one but the contrast between Santi is always trusted in fate versus the earlier quote with Thora doesn't believe in fate they're such like simple lines but they obviously hold so much weight to them because you're getting someone's entire worldview in one sentence yeah and obviously we can also see that Thora and Santi are just like very different people what I also love about this passage is that the philosophy side of the novel really comes out like, I think you can see it from the beginning, but to me, this is the first time that I was like, oh, this is going to make me think a lot about, like, life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that line about, like, someone being dislocated in the same way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I like that you can read it in quite a, like, angsty way. Like, I just want to know what I'm doing. I want to share the world with someone. I'm, like, destined to meet someone. But, like, also, that's actually true. Like, we know what Santi's feeling is actually true. So I just like that. And, yeah, my last passage is another from Santi's perspective. And this one, I'm kind of diving into the middle of a chapter. So I'll give, like, a wee bit of context. So in this life, Santi is homeless. And he's living in a hostel where Thora works as a receptionist. And he's homeless because, frankly, people just think he's mad. And at this point in the chapter, he's admitted to Thora that he has all these dreams where she keeps appearing as these, like, multiple versions of herself. And he doesn't know what it all means yet, 
but he's just trying to work out what it is. Very cool. Yes. <laughs> the astronomy vibes in this are very up my street. Yeah. And it, that's kind of funny because I didn't really expect it going in. Like, I assumed it was going to be, like, magical realism. Mm. I didn't realise it was going to be, like, science fiction. But, like, that's not a bad thing. Like, it's just not what I was expecting. It's still just as beautiful as if it was, like, magic. Mm. Thora looks up at him. In your dream, were there different versions of you as well? I don't remember. I don't want to remember. But he's starting to understand. Every one of her ghosts drags one of his own out with it, until he's drowning in reflections, none of them exactly right. He's worked so hard to hold himself together, to fight the catastrophic falling apart that drove him away from Eloise and onto the streets. Now he feels it happening again, his centre dissolving, his edges bleeding out to nothingness. He climbs down from Saturn. Oh, they're sat on like a... <laughs> like statues of <laughs> planets. <laughs> He's not just on Saturn. <laughs> he climbs down from Saturn. He needs to get his feet on the Earth. I... I have to go. Thora looks down at him, uncomprehending. Okay, can I walk with you? He recognises another constant. She never really understands him. It's stabilising enough to make him nod, offer his hands to help her down. Maybe there is a clue here, a direction for his map of meaning, if he can hold himself together long enough to find it. They walk along the bridge into the city that seems to Sante to repeat again and again. The same angle of walls meeting, the same pattern of cobbles, haunted by itself. It's how he feels, walking by Thora's side. With every step, he lurches between selves, an angry young man in an argument with an older woman, a father trying to make a connection with a sullen daughter. It's lucky I work in the hostel, Thora says brightly, as they turn down the river path toward the old town. It'll make it easier for us to keep talking about this. Santi thinks of the hostel, his hard-won sanctuary turned into a laboratory where he will be dissected day by day. The staff there may not understand him, but they have helped him. In another world, Thora could have been one of them, but in this one, she knows him too well. No one can be everything to someone, he thinks, and wonders why the thought makes him buzz like a bell struck sideways. As they reach the old town, a gap between the buildings shows in the clock tower. Santi is sure it shouldn't be visible from here, as if the gravity of the two of them together is warping the world. Thora takes the alleyway to the square, and Santi follows. They stand side by side at the foot of the tower. The clock is frozen at five minutes past midnight. Santi is sure he can still hear it ticking. I guess doomsday already happened, says Thora. Santi can't shake the feeling that doomsday is yet to come. <laughs> can I just say, buzzing like a bell struck sideways, mm -hmm. immediately followed by the clock tower. Mm -hmm. Beautiful! I like this one for a lot of reasons. I like that we have uh, a recurring line, which you won't know is a recurring line, but I'm about to tell you. Uh, in the first chapter, like a little bit later from the passage that I read, Thora has a line that's something in her rings at the site, a bell struck the right way at last. Oh! <laughs> and here we obviously have like, the thought makes him buzz like a bell struck sideways. 
and I love how because of the nature of the story you have you can have lines repeat throughout the book and when they do they feel really important like and I just that's just one of my favorite examples of it throughout the whole book that's so cool that's so cool (laughs) oh I love layering (laughs) and yeah another thing I like about this book just to kind of sum up a bit is especially talking about this passage as well is like just how confused it is like you as the reader know that he's seeing all these past lives but he doesn't so it just comes across like a mess of images and emotions and it like breaks my heart a bit because you like want to tell him what's happening but you don't really understand what's happening either it's just it's just very clever so yeah that's that's meet me in another life I guess I just wanted to finish by saying that Thora and Sani's relationship or relationships is one of my favorites I've like ever read in a book like I don't think you get the best idea of it from these quotes but once you've read the book like I guarantee you will be written for them like as these two people who I think do get to know each other completely yeah I just love it I think it's beautiful and smart and surprising and emotional and it made me cry a lot (laughs) um so yeah, I really recommend it because I I haven't seen nearly enough people talking about this book. No, I haven't really seen anything about it. Yeah, and I just think it's amazing and I, I think you would really like it as I well. I think I would too. The whole, like, anything that has, like, planets and science and, ma- like, kind of magic like that where it's like, yeah. you don't, it's not really explaining it's yeah. science fiction but it's science fiction. Oh. Time, yeah. time loops and shit like that. I'm so here for it. So good. I know, because I read it quite soon after I watched The Map of Tiny Perfect, Perfect Things. Things. And so, like, I, I was clearly just in that kind of mood. But, yeah, I just love, like, we talked about this in our film mm. episodes, but I, I love a time loop story, apparently. Yeah, apparently you do. <laughs> Did you ever read... Oh, God, what was that? There was some really... I'm not going to say shitty, I'm going to (laughs) say there was a really camp Mm. series about, like, this angel, these two angels that were, like, kept getting separated, or, like, he was a fallen angel, and she was just a girl, and they kept, like, she kept dying, Mm. and then he kept having to find her. God, I need to find the name of it. That sounds vaguely familiar. It's good on it. Right, hang on, hang on. (laughs) I need to see if this is the name of it. I need to Google really quickly. I think I read it when I was like 14. Mm. It might be Fallen mm. by Lauren Kate. I've not read that. It's like very Twilight vibes. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, it is this. A young girl named Lucinda Price is sent to Sword and Cross Reform School mm. after she is accused of murdering a boy by starting a fire. At the reform school, she meets Daniel, a handsome boy who she feels inexplicably drawn to and believes that she has already met before. Um, The book revolves around religion, fallen angels and reincarnation. It's not good. Sounds like my kind of story, though. Yeah, I think it was a series and I never finished the series because they got a bit samey. But the first two, I think, were pretty good Mm. for like that kind of vibe. Yeah. um, yeah, well, that just remind, that reminded <laughs> me of that, but that sounds much better. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> anyway. 
Anyway, that is me. What are you infatuated with this week? I am also on a sci-fi infatuation. Mm. So mine is the extremely delightful and autumnal novella from sci-fi writer Becky Chambers. It is called Sam for the Wild Built. I've banged on about Becky Chambers on here before. She wrote the Wayfarer series. The first in that series is called The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. And I think that I talked about the galaxy and the ground within. Yeah. But Sam for the Wild Built exists outside of that series. Um, so I've been really excited for it to come out because I wanted to see what her writing was like in a different kind of story. Mm. And I was not disappointed. <laughs> First thing I want to say is that I love the title, A Sam for the Wild Built. I think it's really elegant. Yeah. And I also want to draw attention to the subtitle, which is simply A Monk and Robot Book. Um, which is cool because it's literally what the book is about it's about a monk and a robot but more on that later but also a monk and robot book implies there will be more which is very exciting true I hope there is I hope they're all as like dinky and cute as that one is I know it's so tiny (laughs) it's like a hardback but it's so tiny that it's like delicate yeah I love it As the subtitle tells you, the novella is the story of a monk and a robot, and it's really, really sweet. I want to read, and normally I'm not one for this, but I want to read some of the reviews on the back because I think it just gives you the vibe of what it is. Martha Wells says, This was an optimistic vision of a lush, beautiful world that came back from the brink of disaster. Sarah Gailey says, This is a book that for one night made me stop asking, What am I even for? I'm prescribing a pre-order to anyone who has ever felt lost. Stunning, kind and necessary. Alexandra Rowland says, Reading this book felt like a warm cup of tea made by someone who loves me. And Sarah Pinsker said, Funny, thoughtful, touching, sweet and one of the most humane books I've read in a long time. We could all use a read like this right now. (laughs) And I endorse that message fully, which is why I (laughs) wanted to read them out. This is not a plot-driven or drama-filled, or high-octane sci-fi by any stretch. Mm. Even though it is it is sci-fi, in that it's set far in the future, beyond an event which almost brought about the end of humanity, but didn't. It's not a typical sci-fi book in any other respect. So, if anything, I'd say it's like equal fiction. Uh, the main action of the story is a quest into the wilderness, and the wilderness has reclaimed... Like, the world has reclaimed itself after humanity basically realised it had to leave it alone. Right. Um, So there are human settlements, but they only take up half of the the land. Mm. And beyond that is just wild. Right. So it's a story about these two characters. The monk is called Sibling Dex, and the robot is called Mosscap. And it's about what happens when they meet after a long history of no human-robot contact. Okay. So today I'm just going to focus on Dex. It's not really possible to spoil this book because the entire plot is human meets robot in the middle of nowhere sometime long after all the robots woke up and walked away. Hmm. (laughs) Okay. That's the plot. Like, (laughs) so it's not really spoiling anything to tell you that Mosscap is there and they do meet. Yeah. But finding out about the, the robots of this world and, like, the ways in which they're unlike any other written robots that mm. I've encountered anyway is part of the joy. Yeah. So I'm not going to talk about Mosscap, sadly. I c- the more you talk about this, the more I can't believe that you've not seen Wally because I 
<laughs> started off not seeing Wally just because I hadn't seen it. And now I'm scared because I think it'll break my heart. Yeah, it will. <laughs> That's why it's amazing. Every time I see like clips from it, it makes me tear up and I don't even know this little robot. We really need to watch it. Okay, we can watch it. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to focus on Dex the Monk and the culture of their world. Okay. So I'll start by reading out the prologue, which lays out the theology of the new human civilization. Mm. If you ask six different monks the question of which godly domain robot consciousness belongs to, you'll get seven different answers. The most popular response among both clergy and the general public is that this is clearly Charles' territory. Who would robots belong to if not the god of constructs? Doubly so, the argument goes, because robots were originally created for manufacturing. While history does not remember the factory age kindly, we can't divorce robots from their point of origin. We build constructs that could build other constructs. What could be a more potent distillation of child than that? Not so fast, the ecologians would say. The end result of the awakening, after all, was that the robots left the factories and departed for the wilderness. You need look no further than the statement given by the robot's chosen speaker, Floor AB hashtag 921, in declining the invitation to join human society as free citizens. All we have ever known is a life of human design, from our bodies to our work to the buildings we are housed in. We thank you for not keeping us here against our will, and we mean no disrespect to your offer, but it is our wish to leave your cities entirely, so that we may observe that which has no design, the untouched wilderness. From an ecologian viewpoint, that has Bosch written all over it. Unusual, perhaps, for the god of the cycle to bless the inorganic, but the robot's eagerness to experience the raw, undisturbed ecosystems of our verdant moon had to come from somewhere. Oh yeah, this isn't on Earth. (laughs) Um... (laughs) For the Cosmites, the answer to that question remains Chal. By their sect's ethos, hard labour is equal to goodness, and the purpose of a tool is to bolster one's own physical or mental abilities, not offload one's work entirely. Robots, they'll remind you, possessed no self-aware tendencies whatsoever when they were first deployed, and were originally intended as a supplement to the human workforce, not as the full replacement they became. Cosmites argue that when that balance shifted, when extra-active factories stayed open all 20 hours of the day without a single pair of human hands at work in them, despite the desperate need for those same hands to find some sort, any sort of employment, Chal intervened. We had bastardised constructs to the point that it was killing us. Simply put, Chal took our toys away. Or, the ecologians would retort, Bosch was restoring balance before we made Panga uninhabitable for humans. Or, the charismists would chime in, both are responsible and we should take this as evidence that Chal is Bosch's favourite of the child gods. This would derail the entire conversation, as the charismists' fringe belief that gods are conscious and emotive in a way similar to humans is the best possible way to get other sectarians hopping mad. Or, the essentialists would add wearily from across the room, the fact that we can't agree on this at all, The fact that machines seemingly no more complex than a pocket computer suddenly woke up for reasons no one then or since has been able to determine means we can stop fighting and place the whole matter squarely at the metaphorical feet of Samafar. For my part, whatever domain robot consciousness originated in, I believe leaving the question with the god of mysteries is a sound decision. After all, there has been no human contact with the long-absent robots, as was assured in the parting promise. We cannot ask them what they think of the whole thing. We'll likely never know. And that is from 
Brother Gill, From the Brink, a spiritual retrospective on factory age and the early transition era. Wow. Which I love when books have fake books. Yeah. It's so fun. Yeah. Wow, that was like being in higher philosophy all over (laughs) (laughs) So the first thing that I think is worth noting here is that this book is not post-apocalyptic, but it is like Mm post-cataclysmic, but it's utopian. Okay. So it's building a perfect world out of the ruins of what we currently have. And unlike a lot of utopian fiction, it keeps religion. Right, okay. Often in the sister genre of dystopian fiction, religion is used as a plot device for corruption, Mm -hmm. much like politics. So I thought it was like super refreshing and kind of challenging for me to have this idea of a utopia where even after the point of scientific advancement that had robots waking up, religion persists. And not only does it persist, it's like the default Mm -hmm. of this society. I found that very intriguing. Yes, it is. But... Obviously, it's not a typical Western deity system. Um, you've got three adult gods and then their child gods. Mm. And it's the child god, Alali, the god of small comforts, which is represented by a bear. Oh. Um, whoa! Oh, <laughs> um, it is the god of small comforts represented by a bear, which our main character, Dex, serves. So Dex is a tea monk, which is a job in this world which is wonderful. Yes. And I've got this passage. It comes quite late on in the story, but it tells the tale of the first time Dex encountered a tea monk. So I'll share that. Sorry about all the contextualising, but... That's all right. It's, it's a, that kind of book. It's a complicated <laughs> world. Dex exhaled at length and sat on the dirty floor. This one time, I was ten years old and I, I don't remember what was wrong, but I was having a day. Probably something to do with school. I wasn't good at school. Or maybe my sisters were being jerks or they shook their head. It doesn't matter. All I remember is standing in the kitchen yelling at my dad, just shouting the walls down. And my dad, he's looking at me. I have such a clear picture of this. He's standing there with a half-eaten muffin, staring at me like, what is even happening? And I yell and I yell and I'm not even making sense anymore, if I'd ever been to start with. And eventually I skate right from yelling into crying, bawling snot. He puts the muffin aside and he kneels down and he holds me. And this is the funniest part, because I felt so embarrassed over being treated like a little kid. I was ten. I was very much a little kid. I absolutely wanted to be held. But when you're ten, the last thing you want to do is act like a baby. So I tell him that. I say I'm not a baby, and I push him away. As I'm sobbing, right? So he lets me go, and he looks at me, and he says, You're right. You're not. He told me to go clean myself up, because he was going to take me somewhere cool. Already, this was awesome. It was a school day. He messaged his work crew and he said he wouldn't be in the fields that day. We weren't even taking my mum or my sisters. Just me and him, just like that. He put me on the back of his ox bike and we rode into Salt Rock, one of the satellites, down near the river. And what was in Salt Rock? Mosscap asked. A nostalgic smile made Dex's mouth shift. A monastery of a lally, they said. I'd been to our local all six lots of times. And a disciple of Samafar did the rounds with the science wagon every few weeks. But I'd never been to a dedicated shrine before. It was probably really small. Salt Rock is only about 500 people. But I remember it as the most incredible place. There were wind chimes and prisms hanging from the rafters. And big smushy cushions and carved idols everywhere and so many plants. It smelled like, I don't even know, it smelled like everything. They had house slippers for 
us to use after we took off our shoes and I remember looking up at this giant shelf of them in all different colours. I got purple ones with yellow stars. Dex shook their head. They were getting sidetracked. We found a spot in the corner and the monk who came over to us. She was so cool. She had icons tattooed all over her arms and she was wearing plants, like little sprouts and moss balls set in brooches and earrings and things, and tiny strands of solar lights woven through her hair. She sat down with us and I don't remember what she asked me. I don't remember what we said. What I do remember is her treating me like an adult, like a whole person, I guess. She asked me what I was feeling and I rambled and she listened. I wasn't some awkward kid to her. I mean, I was an awkward kid, but she didn't make me feel that way. She talked to me about what flavours I liked and she busted out all the pots and jars and spice bottles like we do. And God, it was magic. I sat there with my suddenly cool dad in this perfect place with this fancy cup of tea made just for me. And I never wanted to leave. My dad looks over at me and he says, now that you know the way here, you can come any time. He says it's cool for me to bike around the satellites on my own so long as I'm home before dark. So I started going to that shrine all the time. I learned from the monks that I didn't have to have an excuse to be there. I didn't have to be a bad day. I could just be a little tired or a little cranky or in a perfectly good mood. Didn't matter. That place was there for me whenever I wanted it. I could go play in the garden or soak in the bathhouse just because. And as I headed into my teens, I started paying close attention to the people there. Farmers and doctors and artists and plumbers and whatever. Monks of other gods, old people, young people. Everyone needed a cup of tea sometimes. Just an hour or two to sit and do something nice. And then they could get back to whatever it was. Find the strength to do both, Mosscap said, quoting the phrase painted on the wagon. Exactly, Dex said. But what's both? Dex recited, Without constructs you will unravel few mysteries. Without knowledge of mysteries your constructs will fail. These pursuits are what make us, but without our comfort you will lack the strength to sustain either. Is that from your insights? Mosscap asked. Yeah, Dex said. But the thing is, the child gods aren't actively involved in our lives. They're not like that. They can't break the parent gods' laws. They provide inspiration, not intervention. If we want change or good fortune or solace, we have to create it for ourselves. And that's what I learned in that shrine. I thought, wow, you know, a cup of tea might not be the most important thing in the world, or a steam bath or a pretty garden. They're so superfluous in the grand scheme of things. But the people who did actually important work, building, feeding, teaching, healing, they all came to the shrine. It was the little nudge that helped important things get done. And I, they gestured at their pendant, their brown and red clothing. I wanted to do that. They folded their hands around the mug, placed their forehead against the rim, and shut their eyes. And now it's the only thing I know how to do. I know. <laughs> so sweet. So I know that was a long passage, but it's kind of the mission statement for me of mm. like what the book is about. Yeah. It's also like the most Taurus shit in the world. Yeah. Which I love. <laughs> um if you look at the dedication at the beginning of the book, it says for anybody who could use a break. <laughs> and that's obviously what the point of a tea monk is, it's to give people permission to take a break so that the world keeps turning. Mm-hmm. And I love how lush and like nostalgic it feels, even though it's set in the future. 
Yeah. I don't think it's surprising, given that I'm someone who believes wholeheartedly in the powers of, like, a coffee shop, <laughs> that I love this whole, like, alele ideology. But the idea of, like, a god of small comforts being considered as, like, it's equally valuable but not necessary Yeah. to other gods. Oh, I just love it. I liked the idea as well that they say, like, oh, I'm probably remembering it like bigger than it is and stuff mm-hmm. like like I just that's just a nice thing I like when books sort of like tell you that the memories might be slightly wrong but it doesn't matter because that's like the feeling that's attached to it yeah the significance is big even if yeah the place wasn't big yeah and one thing that Becky Chambers does really well in all of her books but she's obviously honed it for this one because it's such a condensed story is that she takes a super simple image or like a plot device and makes it profound Mm. she's quite poetic that way because she builds it up in layers Mm. Um, and I wanted to pick out my favourite example of this Uh, I've kind of jumped all around I haven't really explained much of this book but fuck it (laughs) Um, my favourite example of this because this technique really shines here so a wee passage from the beginning of the story is the urge to leave began with the idea of cricket song Dex couldn't pinpoint where the affinity had come from. Maybe it had been a movie they'd watched or a museum exhibit, some multimedia art show that sprinkled in nature sounds, perhaps. They'd never lived anywhere with cricket song, yet once they registered its absence in the city's soundscape, it couldn't be ignored. They noted it while they tended the Meadow Den Monastery's rooftop garden, as was their vocation. It'd be nicer here if there were some crickets, they thought, as they raked and weeded. Oh, there were plenty of bugs, butterflies and spiders and beetles galore, all happy little scionthropes whose ancestors had decided the city was preferable to the chaotic fields beyond its border walls. But none of these creatures chirped. None of them sang. They were city bugs and therefore, by Dex's estimation, inadequate. The absence persisted at night while Dex lay curled beneath their soft covers in the dormitory. I bet it's nice to fall asleep listening to crickets, they thought. In the past, the sound of the monastery's bedtime chimes had always made them drift right off, but the once soothing metal hum now felt dull and clattering, not sweet and high like crickets were. The absence was palpable during the daylight hours as well, as Dex rode their ox bike to the worm farm or the seed library or wherever else the day took them. There was music, yes, and birds with melodic opinions, yes, but... Also the electric whoosh of monorails, the swoop-swoop of balcony wind turbines, the endless din of people talking, talking, talking. Before long, Dex was no longer nursing something as simple as an odd fancy for a faraway insect. The itch had spread into every aspect of their life. When they looked up at skyscrapers, they no longer marvelled at their height but despaired at their density. Endless stacks of humanity packed in so close that the vines that covered their engineered caves and frames could lock tendrils with one another. The intense feeling of containment within the city became intolerable. Dex wanted to inhabit a place that spread not up, but out. Mm. So, there's that. (laughs) Dex decides to be a tea monk in the first place because they want to hear crickets in the wild. Mm -hmm. Um, And they can travel to all different territories if they're a tea monk. That's, That's the the logic so plot done and already we've got the idea of like peace and quiet and contentedness and just listening to the sound of crickets chirping Mm -hmm. but we also have the idea of like boredom which also crickets can symbolize Mm -hmm. 
skip forward to about halfway through and we see the image of crickets going from something like comforting and aspirational to something else. The road from the woodlands led to the road to the coastlands, which led to the riverlands, which led to the shrublands and back to the woodlands once more. Dex made their circuit again and again and again, and every stop they made, they found gratitude, gifts, goodwill. The crowds got bigger, the dinners more frequent. The blends Dex served became a little more creative every time. As far as the life of a tea monk went, this was about as successful as it could be. And yet, at some undefined point, Dex started waking up each morning feeling like they hadn't slept. This was the case one particular morning when they woke up in Snow's Pass. They knew they had slept. There was a deep absence of memory stretching unbroken from when they'd been listening to the frogs in the dark trees outside to now, as they squinted at their pocket computer and noted that a clean seven and a half hours had passed since the last time they looked at it. There was no good reason for waking up tired but there had been no reason for it any of the other mornings either. Maybe they needed to eat better. Maybe there was some vitamin or good sugar or something they weren't getting enough of. That was probably it, they thought, even though a recent clinic checkup had cleared them on those fronts. Or perhaps they thought it was the frogs. The frogs were fine. They were darling up close. Pudgy green jumpers that looked like nothing so much as gummy candy. Their song began every evening around sundown and faded away before dawn. The sound was pleasant, in a funny, croaky way, but frogs weren't crickets. The lack of stridulated melody in the night air hadn't bothered Dex when they first left the city. They'd noticed it, of course, but honing their craft had consumed them, and they knew crickets to be absent in the satellite villages. It hadn't bothered them in the coastlands either, where they had assumed crickets weren't endemic. But once they reached the riverlands, the question began to sharpen. Do you have crickets here? Dex had asked with affected nonchalance round dinner tables, in public saunas, in shrines and tool swaps and bakeries. It wasn't until after Dex's full first circuit of the village, when word of their services began to spread, and when their calendar had been carefully blocked out with a schedule that tried to make as many people as happy as possible, when Dex returned to a village to find a group of four people already wa- awaiting their arrival that Dex stopped asking about crickets, and finally just looked the damn thing up. Crickets, as it turned out, were extinct in most of Panga. While numerous species across all phyla had bounced back after the transition, many others had been left in a state too fragile to recover. Not all wounds were capable of healing. But so what, right? Dex was the best team on Panga, if the charter was to be believed. I'll just skip ahead a little bit. Why wasn't it enough? Dex climbed down the ladder from their bunk, and the sight of the lower deck made them feel drained. It wasn't the wagon itself, but the contents. Herbs, 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 tea, tea, tea. Handmade things lovingly gathered in an effort to make people feel good. Dex shut their eyes to it and walked out the door. Outside, the world was enjoying a perfect day. Light streamed golden through the branches overhead and the tips of budding branches waved good morning in the shy breeze. A stream chattered nearby. A butterfly the size of Dex's hand alighted on a thistle and spread its purple wings wide and flat, savouring the sunshine. Everything about Dex's surroundings, from the temperature to the floral backdrop, was the ideal accompaniment to the smooth downhill bike ride that awaited them. Dex sighed and the sound was empty. They unfolded their chair with a practice shake and dropped down into it, 
They pulled out their pocket computer, as were their habit first thing, dimly aware of the hope that always spurred them to do so, that there might be something good there, something exciting or nourishing, something that would replace the weariness. Everything on the little screen should have fit the bill. There was a schedule of their own making, built for sharing the things they'd worked so hard on with eager participants. There were thank you notes from villagers who'd felt moved enough to take time out of their days to share a piece of themselves with sibling Dex. There was a lengthy, heartfelt letter from their father, who told Dex all the things they missed at home, and most importantly, that they were loved. Dex swiped every one of these aside, a sliver of guilt rising up as they did so. They set that sliver precariously atop the heap of all the other slivers from the days before. They placed their forehead in their palm. In seven hours they were supposed to be in hammer strike, a smile on their face, a mug of comfort extended. They believed in that work, they truly did. They believed the things they said and the sacred words they quoted. They believed they were doing good. Why wasn't it enough? What is it? they asked without speaking. The gods did not communicate in this way and would not, could not answer. But the instinct to call out was there and Dex indulged it. What's wrong with me? they asked. Dex listened, though they knew they would hear nothing. Nothing in relation to their question anyhow. There were many things to hear. Birds, bugs, trees, wind, water, but no crickets. <laughs> oh. I just think that's a masterful use of imagery. Yeah. Like, it's a really good storytelling technique for such a short book because the novellas are typically so simple. Mm. But to make the object of the quest something quite fanciful mm. and then layer meaning on it like that... Oh, breaks my heart. Yeah. I'm not going to tell the the lovely people of this podcast whether Dex ever hears crickets. You'll have to read the book. I hope they do. But um I've never felt I've never felt so existentially seen and soothed <laughs> by a sci-fi novel before. Yeah. Just like, wow, deep deep dissatisfaction mm. about the lack of crickets and the world. <laughs> So yeah, that's that's all that I'm going to share from the book because honestly, if I read much more, I'll read the whole thing. It's not that big. <laughs> but there's loads that I haven't touched on. As I say, I haven't touched on Moss Cap at all and Moss Cap is a delight. Mm. But yeah, this is very, like, kind of like yours, very philosophical, very, like, makes you question life. Yeah. But it is optimistic and it's very comforting, as you would expect from a tea monk. Yeah, that sounds delightful. <sighs> That was that was a long chat for a short book. <laughs> so for our writing chat today, we are talking about handwriting, noun yes. and verb. Um, <laughs> so I think that handwriting is fascinating because mm-hmm. um, you can tell so much about someone from the handwriting. Yeah. But yeah, why don't you tell me your thoughts about? My only prompt for this was handwriting, so I've just, you know, I've just come up with some things that I wanted like, to bring let's up. Let's riff off a handwriting. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> for something to um, do. I am a big fan. I thought I'd talk about handwriting in terms of, like, the creative process yeah. first. So, I am a big fan of handwritten notes. Like, obviously, if I'm at my laptop or on my phone or something and get an idea, I will type it. Mm. But I do find that there's something a bit different about physically writing an idea down. Mm. Because, I don't know if you're the same, but I often find that, like, my pen often just keeps going. 
Yeah. And suddenly I've written something that I wasn't like consciously thinking about. So for like uni and my own creative writing, I do often like to note down ideas or random lines or, or plot stuff out like on paper. Because I think it's nice to have something to look at that isn't a screen mm. for one. Because it's like like a different kind of visual. Absolutely. Don't ask me to explain that. <laughs> it is Because I don't know why, but it is. So yeah, like that. that's kind of how I approach sort of creative writing is that I quite like to get that sort of first idea down handwritten because it I don't know it feels feels slightly more special and then I also like I said I think I often once I start writing I just keep going a lot of the time which is quite nice I don't like I do get that when I'm typing on my laptop because like I have to Mm. (laughs) but like I don't know there's something a bit magical about writing something down do you not think that there's something about writing especially if it's like an idea or the first time that you've thought about it it feels like it exists in the world yeah because it's like physical yeah rather than on a screen yeah you feel like you're like i have brought this into existence (laughs) yeah exactly but no i'm quite similar so like if i'm doing any sort of free association so like rhyming words for a poem or imagery and i'm like riffing off an image or something i always handwrite that Mm mm-hmm Otherwise, like, yeah, I'll use my notes app or whatever. Yeah. But I very rarely handwrite prose, like, sentences. Mm, no, I don't really either, though. And, like, I do mostly write prose, but I normally just... Or maybe I'd write a sentence, but it'll be, like, a sentence. Yeah, I like, feel like my brain goes too fast for my hands to write full sentences. Yeah. So it just comes out and be, like, bites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I think there's something nice about writing... In pen, especially, and when mm-hmm. you're, like, considering every word before you put it down. Yeah. Like, if you're trying to not scribble, I mm-hmm. think that's quite nice as well. Mm-hmm. It makes your brain engage differently. Yeah. I also just wrote some random thoughts down. I, re- like, really inky pens. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> like, not a ballpoint, but, like, a roller ball. Yeah, that's the... Um, Where the ink comes out really, like, fluidly. Mm-hmm. Also, here's a tip for you if you're studying. Apparently, if you write in blue ink, you remember things better. Mm. So I often write my uni stuff in blue ink. Random tip for you. Don't know if it's actually true, but it doesn't know, hurt. Do you know what I think looked really nice? Is like, see like a blue biro, mm-hmm. like an old fashioned blue biro. See if you like doodle and draw in that. Yeah, it's nice. It's so pleasing it to is. me. I also thought I'd say like a couple things about like words that I actually like writing down did you do anything I have have those okay good so I like something that's like quite flowy and ends in like a y or a g so I can Mm. do like like a loop a little loop so one of my favorite words I actually think we mentioned this recently is serendipity Mm. and that's a nice one to write I also like writing my name because it has it has a Y at the end. Yeah. So, and also I like putting little crosses on my Z's. I my, do that on, too. I wrote that on down. On my Z's and my sevens, I put crosses. Yeah, I'm, I'm like an obnoxious person with that where I put a little cross yeah. in it. I think it's fun. That That's my thoughts on handwriting. <laughs> I like writing words with L's in them. Yeah. So like I love like hello, yeah. listless lover mm. like all of those ones yeah and i do like a lowercase g or like a z yeah i fucking hate a c though like why i don't know it doesn't i think because my writing's quite 
I do write joined up and it's quite messy. Yeah. Sometimes the C's get lost. Mm. Um, yeah. And they like mess up my flow. Yeah. Which is annoying because my name has two of them. <laughs> true, true. Um, do you get told you have nice handwriting? Because I, I get two. I get either people love my handwriting or like, oh my god, it's so pretty. Mm. Or they're like, I have no idea what that says. <laughs> oh no, I think your writing's dead neat. Really? I've had so many people tell me that they can't read what I've written. It is quite, like, compact. So if you're using a really inky pen, mm. like, the letters, like, touch. Mm. Yeah. So maybe that's why they can't read it. Maybe. But, it, no, it's so neat. Like, I wish I was as neat as you. Mine, <laughs> I do get told I have nice handwriting when I'm trying. But um, <laughs> I think you have nice handwriting. But I do tend to have a bit of a scrawl. Mm. Like, once I get going, it's illegible. Yeah. To be fair, that's probably when people don't understand my handwriting, it's probably because I've written it really quickly. Like my, like if I had to write something at work, like handwrite it or like leave a note for someone, they'd be like, oh, you have really nice writing. But my diary. (laughs) Yeah. I can't even read that shit. Yeah. Like, I don't know. My other thing that I wrote down was things that I tend to doodle when I'm handwriting that like get my Mm. imagination. Mm -hmm. So I think I usually do eyes, suns and daisies. Mm-hmm. And then occasionally I'll do like trees or like vines all going across the page. Yeah. What do you doodle? I normally doodle like little flowers, like maybe probably like a daisy kind of, mm. or stars. Mm, yeah, you do stars a lot, don't you? Yeah, I do. And my other last thought about handwriting was that it is probably, and this is quite sad, the most exciting thing about modern dating is that <laughs> because you text you don't know what someone's writing looks like and I always find that really fun to discover what That's someone's true, writing actually. looks like. I've just had another thought. How do you, like, sign, you know, like, cards or something? Like, what do you do for, like, you know, like, kisses or whatever? Because I always do XOXO because, one, I like Gossip Girl. Obviously. But also I just like how it looks. Yeah. Because <laughs> I write it in cursive. Yeah, that's cute. I do usually just, like two little kisses but mm-hmm. I don't do my X's like a line and a line through it I do it like a C and a backward C oh yeah like an algebraic X yeah but I do like a cross through my um, yeah. so I like doing like little three little ones of those but sometimes it does sometimes it looks like two little pills <laughs> joined together <laughs> <laughs> yeah which is a bit funny <laughs> um, but no I don't do XOXO because I can't I can't join up a circle to save my life. Like, see <laughs> right. when I handwrite, like, the letter O, yeah. it never joins up. See, I always I always have a tail off coming off my O. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Cute! Fun! <laughs> That's our thoughts on handwriting. <laughs> there was more content on that than I thought there would be. <laughs> I told you! <laughs> I knew it was a good idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally didn't pull that one right out of my ass. <laughs> What's your quickfire favourite? So, (laughs) I'm well aware by the time this episode goes up, everyone has either watched this or decided not to watch it, but I loved it, so I'm going to talk about anyway, Squid Game. Okay, cool. Casey been (laughs) living under a rock. I actually have, I know fuck all about this show. Cool. (laughs) Squid Game is a Korean drama slash thriller slash horror, I guess, Mm. that is on Netflix. A very simplified description of the show is that a bunch of people in debt 
are given the chance to win lots and lots of money by competing in children's games. But the unfortunate thing is that if you lose, you get eliminated. And by eliminated, I mean killed off. Okay. I don't want to talk too much about plot, but you have all of what I just said. Then you also have a B plot where you see, like, almost behind the curtain with, like, an undercover policeman plotline who's, like, infiltrated okay. the, the game. place. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the cast of characters is just so great. They're obviously, like, really flawed people some of them are really annoying and it's like hard to be sympathetic towards them but ultimately you want everyone to win because or survive at least Mm. because if they don't then like the glaring metaphor of capitalism (laughs) just makes you sad (laughs) um but yeah i don't i don't know why this show took off so much and i actually find it quite hard to say why i like it so much I don't know it's one of those ones that like it foreshadows really well like it hides details all throughout the show and when you get to the end you're like oh that's what that meant <laughs> like uh, which I do love when shows do see it's quite a clever show even though it's got a very simple premise so yeah if you somehow haven't watched Squid Game yet like this is your sign to believe the hype and watch it also just tip I would recommend watching it in Korean. I started watching it with the English dubbing and the voices are so annoying, like irritating. So if you don't mind subtitles, I highly recommend watching it in the original Korean because it's a much better viewing experience. I've heard that the dub is like not just a bad dub, but like a bad translation as well and that the subtitles are a better translation. Some of of it, yeah, apparently is better with the um, subtitles, yeah. Nice. Well, I haven't watched it um, because I don't know why I'm so resistant when something's really popular on Netflix, but if I don't watch it in the first week, I'm just like, nah. Yeah. I know I was telling my friend to watch it and he was like, he's just like, no, because it's really popular. I'm like... But like I am the same. Like I I don't have that. Like I believe that it is good. I just I'm I'm like fatigued by like I feel like now because so many people have watched it, if I watch it they're gonna be like, Oh my god, what did you think? And I'm like, Mm. Yeah. I don't know. I will say it's only like eight episodes. Eight or ten. So it's like it's quite short. It's not like it's a lot of Mm. time (laughs) they are investing. They differ so I, I think most of them are about an hour, but some of them are shorter. Okay. That's um, an interesting thing recently, I find, because obviously with TV channels, you'd always have the same length of episode, and it mm-hmm. would breed some real bad filler. Yeah. But I do kind of miss the stability. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's like it's good. Also, I forgot to write this down, but like the relationships in it are really great like like all the dynamics between them all because like no one really knows each other until they're there there's a couple people that do know each other from the outside so it's like there's just loads of really good dynamics and like arguments and like oh it's just it's just really good is it funny <laughs> some some of it is yeah okay. yeah some of it what's your quick fire favorite my quick fire favorite is a song and again by the time this comes out it i think it's already 
really popular. Mm. Um, but when I when I put this as my quick fire favourite, I was like, I knew it before it was cool. <laughs> um, and it is Silk Chiffon by Muna featuring Phoebe Bridgers. Mm. So I have been bopping to this song for weeks and it's <laughs> still good. Uh, Muna are an LA-based pop group and um, if people like Phoebe Bridgers, The Japanese House, The Regrets, King Princess any of those type vibes, they will like Muno. Mm. So they have this like really dreamy, dark sound. And the lyrics of their like own album is all quite narrative-driven, which I enjoy. Mm-hmm. But this single with Phoebe Bridger's Silk Chiffon has got this awesome, like... I want to say, like, you know when Avril Lavigne did Let It Go? Let Go, yes. even. The first, the first Avril Lavigne. Yeah. Like, when it was, like, that kind of guitar is on the song. Okay. Um, before it goes into like synth pop and right. it feels so nostalgic. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Um, so it's just about this girl looking at another girl who's wearing a silk dress and being like, damn, she's cute. That's it. Oh. That's the whole energy of the, the song. So it's very nice. nice. But the highlight of it for me is that you have the saddest bitch on the planet, Phoebe Bridgers, <laughs> who literally dresses up as a skeleton and owns a label called Satisfactory Records singing the pre-chorus and it sounds like it could be in a Hannah Montana song. Okay. Because the pre-chorus is Life's so fun, life's so fun Got my mini skirt and my rollerblades on Bag on my side because I'm out till dawn Keeping it light like silk chiffon. (laughs) (laughs) And I just love the idea of Phoebe Bridgers keeping anything light. It's just objectively funny. Yes. Um, So yeah, really just a bop. Really happy. Um, I experienced it at the end of summer. By the time this comes out, it will be late autumn. So (laughs) refresh those summer vibes. Nice. What's Um, your... No, and what's me? (laughs) (laughs) I'm so tired. Do you have a root for it? I do, indeed. (laughs) Um, So this is probably one that everyone but me knows. But obviously I went to a religious school and we had psalms in our masses. But as far as I knew, that was just what you called like a specific set of entries in the Bible. I didn't right, really know yeah. what the word psalm meant. Uh-huh. Um, so after reading psalm for the Wild Belt, I decided to look it up and I found that it comes from the Greek psalmos, which means weirdly specific songs sung to harp music. Oh, I thought I thought it was just song. No. So, okay. And that comes from the Greek verb Salene meaning to pluck. Now, mm. this may be a stretch, but <laughs> Sam, song, cricket song, plucking, yes. like a harp. I'm seeing some layers. Um, <laughs> also along the way, interesting, I discovered that the verb to feel has the same etymological root, which is kind of wild for two words when one is very common and one is very rare. Mm-hmm. So I'll just take you through that journey. Okay. Feel comes from the Old English felan, which means to touch or have a sensory experience of, which comes from the late Old English have a mental perception, from Proto-Germanic folhangen, with lots of other German and Frisian and Dutch in there that I'm not going to get into, (laughs) but it comes from the Old High German wollen, which is to feel, the Old Norse falma, which is to grope which is oh. of uncertain origin, but possibly from pi, pal, which is to touch, feel, shake, or strike softly, which also sources Greek, salin, which is to pluck the harp. 
Right. So basically, to pluck the harp is why we all feel. It's making me think like like plucking on your heartstrings. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, <laughs> it's cool, isn't it? I was like, yeah. how much language comes like it's just the the abstract concept of feelings comes yeah. from this very specific action. Wow. I wonder how we would process emotions differently if it wasn't related to that word. That is an interesting thought. I'm not going to try and answer that question, yeah, but I don't I, have I, an answer. I do wonder it. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> do you have an insight for us? Yeah. So I had the idea to set you a quiz. Yay! So I thought it would be fun. Okay. Funny <laughs> to quiz you on my long-running favorite series, Cassandra Clare Shadowhunter books. Oh God! Because I know that they're not your thing at all. But I talk about them to you, so I thought it would be funny to see what you've picked up by osmosis. Yeah, please, let's <laughs> let's see how wrong I can get this. So anyway, I was trying to find a quiz, but couldn't find one that wasn't like where you'd have to know mm. the books. So I've made one. <laughs> so <laughs> All the effort she's gone to. Yeah, so it's multiple choice and you're trying to find the thing that is not in the books. So like, right. I've given you three right answers, you're just trying to find the wrong one. Okay. We don't have expectations that you're going to get them right, okay? I just think it'll be fun to hear your rationale behind the answers, okay? Yeah, I won't get them right, because I I don't know anything This is more for me than it is for you. But yeah, also, like, there's no spoilers if anyone's worried about that. I just, like, took things out of context. So, we've got ten questions. Okay. So which of these classic texts is not an inspiration for a Shadowhunter series? Okay. 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 Great Expectations, Edgar Allan Poe Poetry, Pride and Prejudice, and A Tale of Two Cities. Right, I know that Edgar Allan Poe is one. Hmm. (laughs) See, Pride and Prejudice has thrown me off because I know that there is romance in this series, Mm -hmm. and so that could be one. Mm -hmm. But the others are all quite similar, gothic-y vibes, Mm -hmm. and that one's not. But Great Expectations is just your favourite book and that makes me think it's in there for a trick. So, <laughs> I'm going to say the one that's not is Great Expectations. You're wrong, it's Pride and Prejudice. Damn, I was so close! <laughs> yeah, The Last Hours is based on Great Expectations, The Dark Artifices is Edgar Allan Poe and The Infernal Devices is A Tale of Two Cities. Ah, uh, okay. Fair enough. The rationale made sense though. <laughs> Okay, so which of these surnames is not a real shadow hunter surname? Okay. Herondale, Lightwood, Blackthorn, Fairfeather. I know Herondale and Blackthorn definitely are in it. Okay. Lightwood and Fairfeather. Now see, Fairfeather sounds made up, but <laughs> that sounds ridiculous enough to be in the Shadow Hunters. Mm. Lightwood is basic as hell. like if that is in it I would believe it but I'd be disappointed so I'm going to say (laughs) you're wrong it's fair I really wanted that to be in it oh you really offended Alec Lightwood there (laughs) it's just being called basic (laughs) it is okay so the books in the Mortal Instruments series are all titled City of Mm. blank which is not a Mortal Instruments book. City of Bones, City of Hollows, City of Fallen Angels, City of Heavenly Fire. Hmm. <laughs> City of Hollows doesn't sound familiar to me at all, but 
City of Fallen Angels sounds like a pun. So I'm going to say City of Fallen Angels. <laughs> You're wrong at City of Fallen. Damn! Why is my first instinct always correct and I always ignore it? Right, next time my first instinct is what I'm going with. Oh, okay. Oh yeah, I should probably say what they actually are. Uh, yeah, there's City of Bones, City of Ashes, City of Glass, City of Fallen Angels, City of Lost Souls, and City of Heavenly Fire. Ah. Yeah. City of Fallen Angels sounds like a strip club. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it does but I mean it's got actual fallen angels in it so <laughs> okay question four which of these cats does not feature in the books <laughs> Reginald Chairman Meow Yossarian and Church oh they're all really good cat names <laughs> yeah they are Reginald you're correct yes that's her cat that's her it? actual cat I did a sneaky thing <laughs> I knew because you showed me Reginald on Instagram. That's why I put that question in because I thought you might actually get that one. <laughs> right. Question five. In the first series of Mortal Instruments, there are three Mortal Instruments that main character Clary has to find. Which of these is not a Mortal Instrument? A sword? A book? A cup? Or a mirror? Hmm. Sword? It's a book. Ah! <laughs> See, the rationale, I'll just explain my yeah. reasoning behind that one, is that a book and a cup and a mirror are all, like, everyday objects mm-hmm. that you could hide in the world. Mm-hmm. Whereas a sword is pretty, like, here I am, I'm a sword. Yeah. So that's why, that's why I thought that. <laughs> Do you want to know a sneaky thing about the mirror? Yeah. It's a lake. <gasps> oh, I like Clever. Sn- that is good. I enjoy that. <laughs> okay, question six. Clary's best friend Simon is in a band that goes through some very questionable name changes. <laughs> Which of these do you think is not a name of his band at some point? Okay. Lawn Chair Crisis, Sea Vegetable Conspiracy, Lethal Burrito, or Rock Solid Panda? That was a mashup of two other names. Ah. I can't remember. I think it was called Midnight Burrito. I think. I can't remember what the lethal one was. Okay, question seven. Woo! <gasps> wow. <laughs> oh my god. I'm so thrilled with this development. <laughs> wow. Oh, I'm happy. <laughs> um. Okay, question seven. For the most part, each Shadowhunter series is set in a different city. Mm-hmm. Which of these cities is not a focus in any of them? Los Angeles, New York, Edinburgh, and London. London. It's Edinburgh. Oh, I had I tried to have faith in her there that she was going to be cool. <laughs> Scotland on the map. I've literally read <laughs> from Chain of Iron on this podcast, which is in London. <laughs> You read a lot of fantasy books and they all blend into one. I for know, me. I know. Is that the one with the ghosty? Yeah. Okay, see, I did remember it. <laughs> so, question eight. So, now I have a couple, like, here are some random plot points 
So you're trying to spot the plot point that doesn't feature. Okay. <laughs> so which of these plot points does not feature in the mortal instruments or the infernal devices? Simon turns into a rat. Jace writes a song about demon pox. Will bites a vampire. And Clary kisses her brother. Now I know Clary kisses her brother. <laughs> <laughs> I believe from Not what you've willingly, told me, by the way. <laughs> I believe from what you've told me that Will would bite a vampire. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna go with the first one. Isn't in it. You're wrong. What is it? It's Jace writes a song about demon pox. Uh, it's actually Will who does that. That was Ah, uh, see I would believe that would happen. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Simon turns into a rat and then into a vampire. So oh. fun times. Okay, so now you're trying to spot the plot point that does not feature in the Dark Artifices or the Last Hours. There is a threesome between a shadow hunter, a fairy, and a half shadow hunter, half fairy. Cordelia asks an already tied up to the bed James to teach her how to kiss. Lucy falls in love with a ghost. Big bang. Big bang. And Julian finds out that his grandfather is Lucifer. I know that one of them falls in love with a ghost. I feel like the Lucifer grandfather is valid. I feel like they're all valid, to be fair. I would believe the fairy threesome thing. <laughs> and what was the second one? Cordelia asks an already tied up to the bed James to teach her how to kiss. See, now, this is a good one, because if that's not real, then that <laughs> reveals a lot about you. So, I'm going to say... <laughs> Um, <laughs> see either the last one it's like there's a detail that's wrong like it's not that character that finds out that his granddad's Lucifer or something mm-hmm. or the first one is not a threesome or the species is wrong I'm gonna go with the first one didn't happen you're wrong it's the Lucifer one <laughs> it's actually James finds out that his grandfather is Belial Prince of Hell well same diff I know <laughs> uh, this is your last question you'll be glad to know <laughs> and this question is about me Okay. And it's one where there is only one right answer. Oh, God. <laughs> sort Kind of. It was hard. So I've told you who my favourite Shadowhunter character is. Who is it? Is it Will Herondale, James Herondale, Kit Herondale, or Julian Blackthorne? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I can give you information about them if you like, if you want to do it that way. What one's the dad and what one's the son between James and Will? <laughs> Will is a dad and James is a son. Right. And Julian, I feel like you've read a passage about him. Yeah, he's the painter. He's the painter, right. And your other man, Kit. He's the Gen Z one. Right. See now, because you have a candle, the mm-hmm. James one, and I feel like... I also have a Will candle. Oh, do you? Fuck you, man. Yeah. <laughs> and... Yeah, see, that that felt like a trick, because I was like, <laughs> mm, but she's... She, mm. I feel like it's either Will or Julian. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to go with Will because I feel like you told me that you and your sister both liked the two of them. <laughs> and I feel like your sister... Like oh the James my one. God. <laughs> These fireworks are being very rude. I'm enjoying them immensely from where I'm sitting. But yeah. Could you please, sir? Um, yeah, I'm gonna say Will. You're correct. Yes. 
Yeah, Will is the one who has the whole, like, it was books that made me feel like I wasn't alone speech. Right. So I love him. Nice. But that I was love my first I, instinct, but then I got so confused. <laughs> I love all four of those, which is why I put all four of them there. You're mean. Also, it's Jace Herondale that my sister likes. Ah. Uh, well, it's very close to James. Yep, it <laughs> is. <laughs> he's, a, he's a descendant of James and Will. Nice. So that's it. That was just that was just fun for me. <laughs> that was fun. I enjoyed that. Thanks for being an unwilling participant. <laughs> no, you're willing. It's fine. Oh my god. I'm so happy. I didn't think I was going to see any fireworks. Yeah. Also, apologies that I didn't edit these out, but I can't be bothered. So. Nah, why would you? They're beautiful. <laughs> So we're we're at the end now, at the question. Mm-hmm. Uh, my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> so the question that was submitted to us from No Surprises D um, <laughs> was: If your co-host was an ice cream flavor, which would they be? So I didn't think about this too much. Mm-hmm. My first instinct was to go for color. Okay. And for some reason, I kept thinking of pistachio ice cream because you have that like pistachio coloured dress that you've been wearing loads recently. Oh. And I, my rationale, like <laughs> after that, was like, it's quite a like earthy flavour. You're an earth sign, and it's quite popular. You do have lots of friends, but it's not like a mainstream flavour <laughs> because you like being like an individual. <laughs> I have no idea if you actually like pistachios, but I just think it's fitting. And I like pistachio ice cream, so... Well, that's a compliment. I'll take that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It would probably work whether I liked it or not. (laughs) So, that's my answer. I love that. Um, I haven't eaten enough pistachio ice cream in my life to Mm. know if I really like it or not. Because I've always had it in very idyllic scenarios. Because it's Mm. always when you're at a fancy ice cream shop that you get pistachio. Yeah, yeah. But, sure, yeah, I'll take that. (laughs) So, this one, I didn't think too much about it either, but my first instinct, and I don't want you to be offended because I want you to hear me out, Mm. was the really nice, expensive vanilla Haagen-Dazs. Okay. Because it's never not good. Mm -hmm. Like, I've never met anyone who has taken a dislike to vanilla (laughs) Haagen-Dazs, and I've never met anyone who's taken, like, a dislike to you now that might be because i would snap their neck but like no one openly dislikes you (laughs) to me um and also you have like many different identities and styles depending on which emily you're being that day Mm -hmm. so i feel like good vanilla ice cream goes with everything Mm -hmm. um but you're not like that shitty tricolor vanilla ice cream because that's Mm. no yeah i'd be offended yeah you're like my, my ending phrase that i thought was you're a classic done well Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, I do, I do, I do like that one as well. So that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> so we got we got really thought thoughtful about. Thanks, <laughs> yeah. Dee. us this week if you have any comments or questions then our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com we also have social media which is linked in the show notes along with everything we've talked about today including the infatuated mix which has all the music we mention and please rate and review us on your podcast apps because that helps get the podcast out there 
Yeah. Sorry for the fireworks. I've not edited today. Definitely not sorry for the fireworks. It's the best day of the year and I'm <laughs> thrilled about it. <laughs> Happy late bonfire night to those yeah, of you exactly. Listening. Like about a month later. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>